0: Episode 339, Helping Employers Navigate the Perilous Medical-Industrial Complex. Today, I speak with David Contorno.
1: American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value.
0: Let's just start here. As a general construct, insurance carriers have every incentive for health insurance premiums to go up every year. If you're an employer, that is a material fact. Is it counterintuitive? Maybe. Except if you're an employer and your premiums are going up year after year, it begs the question why every single year the already extravagant amount you pay continues to go up way more than the inflation rate. You'd think that if your broker and your plan administrator were so great at their fiduciary responsibility over your self-insured plan, that this wouldn't be happening. Oh, right. Whosever PPO network you're using, they don't have any fiduciary responsibility over your self-insured plan. You do. All you CFOs and CEOs and benefit professionals out there. Well, wait, I misspoke. Plan administrators do have fiduciary responsibility to their shareholders. The CEO of CVS Aetna made $36 million in 2019. He's clearly very good at that job. The rest of them are too. I'm not singling anyone out here. And also this podcast is not investment advice. In short, as previously stated, most major insurance carriers and the brokers they pay commissions to have every incentive for your premiums to go up every single year. That's where we're at, folks. It's an open secret. Yet so many are just getting so wildly taken advantage of by carriers and brokers whom they have really put their trust in. If you work for a self-insured employer, tell your CFO CEO to listen to the show. Or if you are a CEO, CFO, or a benefits professional in charge of healthcare benefits, welcome. I hope this information is helpful. My guest today, David Contorno, has been in the benefits industry longer than he hasn't been in the benefits industry. I think he started working in a benefits brokerage when he was like 17 or something. Currently, he's the founder of ePowered Benefits. Today, we talk about the keys for self-insured employers that lead to better health for their employees at something like 20% or more lower costs. Here's some of the imperatives for employers that David digs into today. Key number one, advanced primary care really valuing primary care providers who do not work for hospital systems and therefore are not subjected to the ball and chain of perverse incentives that David talks about at some length today. Key number two, Getting cost and quality data so you can make prospective choices and not get hit in the back of the head with an after the fact gotcha in the form of an overpriced bill that you are now obligated to pay. Let me bring up all the articles lately in the New York Times and elsewhere, people paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for something that should cost a fraction of that. Most of them have, in air quotes, good insurance. Keep that in mind from their employer. Also keep in mind that most of these stories that hit the news are the ones where some poor employee got stuck with the bill, not the metric ton of other examples where the self-insured employer was on the hook. If you're an employer, you can get ahead of these gotcha moments. It's I mean, it's textbook risk mitigation, if nothing else. Key number three, create benefit designs to help employees find and incent them to use the highest quality providers charging a fair price. Listen to the episode 334 link in the show notes, the episode with Sinita Desai for more on the topic of incenting consumerism. Key number four, know how your broker gets paid. If someone is paying your broker a commission and it isn't you, then your broker makes more money when your premiums and rates go up. They are a sales rep getting paid to make someone else money off of you. Key number five, get a handle on your pharmacy spend. David gets into some nuances here, which are super interesting. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. David Contorno, welcome back to Relentless Health Value. Thanks
1: for having me, Stacey.
0: If everyone has the same incentive, which should be to help an employee slash patient slash member get better care at fair cost, then everybody across the spectrum sh- should actually win, except those trying to profiteer, I would anticipate.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you dramatically increase the odds of that occurring. That flow of money is really powerful. And one of the things that I hope to bring a little more clarity to in the course of this podcast is what are those incentives? How does an insurance carrier make money? How does a broker make money? How does a brokerage agency that a broker works for make money? How do pharmacy benefit managers make and maximize money? How do the local health systems make and maximize? How do doctors make? And when you look at all that and you understand it, then the results that we're getting in our healthcare system become just incredibly clear. And I will tell you that what's required to correct those things is not really a massive degree of intellect or even innovation. It's really just applying sound, economic principles that we often take for granted in other sectors of the economy.
0: It's just kind of doing scenario planning the whole way out to the end. And to your point, it's not like it's incredibly... The system is designed to produce the results that it <laughs> produces after all, right? So mm-hmm. no one should mm-hmm. be shocked. But there is a roadmap for self-insured employers who, who want to take control of their healthcare costs and actually get the most for their dollar. I mean, in general, I don't know if you would agree or disagree, but very top line, we know what to do, right? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think for the the more sophisticated employers, I'm going to use a phrase that I bet you they're very used to in other sectors of their, of their business. They need to put on their procurement hat. They need to understand that they're in the healthcare business, whether they wanted to be, whether they thought they were, whether they plan to be. They're in that business when they're looking at other parts of their business. And it could be as simple as procuring office supplies, you know, they don't just allow some other company to manage that with no insight or visibility. They know and they can find out what a paperclip costs them. And if they could understand and know what an x-ray costs them or knee surgery, then, then they would start to understand how dysfunctional even the lack of some of that information is, let alone when you do get answers. And so I think if they were to put on that efficiency hat and recognize that, It is incumbent upon a business, both financially, fiduciarily, and morally and ethically, it should be incumbent upon every business owner to make sure with 100% certainty and visibility that their plan is operating in the best interests of all of its participants, both financially and clinically. And if you look at how the large carriers handle decisions and you look at how they maximize their revenue and their profit, you'll see that in every way, literally in every way, It is opposite the interests of the employer and the employee slash patient.
0: So then I'm assuming that one of the things, (laughs) let's just say waystation number one in your what should employers do roadmap is not work with entities who are working for their shareholders, not necessarily their clients is what I'm understanding.
1: Correct. And I'd be fine if the way that they maximize value to the shareholders also brought value to the Members and the employers. So here's the deal. And this is the example I give. Let's pretend that I run United Healthcare's fully insured business, which is their most profitable sector on the insurance side. And in every state, I have to file my rates for next year around now. Let's just pick a state, New York State. So, in order for me to set my rates in New York State as United Healthcare, I need to first identify what the largest expenses in the plan are going to be, at least a prediction of that. And those are always, of course, in any health plan, the cost of medical care and prescription care. So I'm going to go to my team of very well-trained, well-paid actuaries, and I'm going to ask them, how much do you think everyone on a fully insured United Healthcare plan in 2022 is going to spend in New York State on both medical and prescription costs? And these actuaries have gotten very good at predicting that, but let's pretend they come back to me with a number of 850 million dollars so i say okay i can handle that i'm gonna set my premiums around the state to ensure that i bring in a billion dollars so that i have the 850 million to pay for the claims i have 150 million that's going to be partially to pay my own overhead but as a publicly traded entity i better send profit back to the home office in minnesota because that's my primary responsibility so that model leaves me plenty to do that so january 1st 2022 rolls around and every month Preordained, I'm collecting one twelfth of a billion dollars. But let's pretend in 2022, something very different occurs. The cost containment tools that every carrier puts out there, let's pretend in 2022, they actually work. And instead of $850 million, the people on my fully insured plans only spend $425 million. Do I make more profit or do I make less profit? Now, most employers say, of course, you make more profit. You collected a billion dollars and your expenses were half of what you anticipated. But here's the problem. The medical loss ratio provision doesn't allow them to keep that. It says that they must spend $0.85 of every dollar they collect on healthcare costs. So they would not only have to return the $425 million in claims they didn't spend, but that still doesn't get them to $85.15. They would also have to return $75 million of the overhead and profit that they anticipated on that billion dollars. So if claims go down in any given year, the carrier will actually have less revenue and less
0: profit. One of the reasons why you're saying it's less profit is because 15% profit on a bigger number is is a bigger absolute number. So if they start giving back money, then they're only making 15% off of $450 million, for example, instead of $850 million.
1: Exactly. Higher costs equal more profit and more revenue. And that doesn't apply just to the insurance company, as we explained, but most brokers are paid commission or undisclosed compensation tied to volume, and they're also incentivized for higher costs.
0: We obviously have a situation where the brokers who aren't being paid by the employer, being paid by the insurance carrier, you know what they say, whoever pays the piper calls the tune, right?
1: (laughs) Yes. I believe that wholeheartedly.
0: (laughs) All right. Okay. So say I'm a self-insured employer then, does the money get returned to me then? I mean, obviously I'm self-insured, that should mean that it would, correct?
1: Well, it would, but here's the problem. It's unlikely to occur, because even though you're self-funded and even though the medical loss ratio doesn't apply to your plan, You still put your plan on all the same claims adjudication platforms, medical management rules, PPO pricing in which those rules do occur. So you've not only put yourself in just as dysfunctional an environment as if you were fully insured, but you've taken any risk the carrier had off of their shoulders and put it squarely onto yours. And that just makes absolutely no sense to me.
0: The self-insured employers that we're talking about right now are the ones who use a major carrier as the entity that is managing their self-insured plan.
1: Yes, but if you go with an independent administrator and you still slap on a large carrier PPO network, And one of the big three pharmacy benefit managers, you might be nibbling around the edges a little bit. I'm not going to say you haven't done a little bit of good, but it's going to be negligible at best because, again, the huge majority of costs in any health plan are medical costs and prescription costs. And when you tack on a Cigna PPO network and express scripts as your PBM, you've preordained the huge majority of your costs to be the same. So even if you're going to save 20 percent, it's going to be 20 percent of 20% maybe of the plan, which is a 4% savings, not something that's really to write home about.
0: Earlier, at the top of this conversation, you were talking about putting a procurement hat on as an employer. So Mm -hmm. if I put my procurement hat on as an employer, why wouldn't I hire a, you know, you never got fired for hiring IBM, right? You probably also (laughs) never got fired for hiring
1: Blue Cross Blue Shield.
0: Yeah, right. But if I've got my procurement hat on, why wouldn't I call up Blue Cross Blue Shield, any of these large carriers and say, well, give me all of my charges and I will go through them. And then you'd be able to figure that out, correct?
1: (laughs) Unfortunately, no, because getting data is pretty difficult from the carriers, even in a self-insured model. But when you do get it, it's going to be, first of all, backwards looking. So there's nothing you can do about something that's already occurred. And if you ask about future expenses, they're gonna not know. And I, I, and when I say future expenses, I don't mean, can you tell me what my costs are gonna be next year? I mean, if one of my employees went for a knee surgery at this hospital on this day, what would the cost be? And they're not gonna be able to tell you. And if they can't tell you what the cost is going to be, how can you possibly do anything about it? I think the biggest issue here is they've couched themselves especially around pricing in these confidential non-disclosure environments and now you can't do anything before it occurs and it's once it's already occurred the damage is already there
0: large employers i mean really large employers jumbo employers who have had crackerjack <laughs> benefits teams that are able to really be knowledgeable procurers of healthcare, Mm -hmm. But it's becoming less of a mystery how to do this. A self-insured employer who has actually a legit plan that takes everything that you're saying on board, Mm -hmm. what are they tending to do? Like, what are the four or five things?
1: One thing that's picking up a lot of steam is dramatically enhancing primary care. The problem with devalued primary care is it's so devalued that most people pass over the primary care provider and go right to the specialist. So for example, if they have a back pain, they go right to the back surgeon. Well, I'm sure you've heard to a hammer, everything looks like a nail. What does everything look like to a back surgeon? Back surgery, that's what they do, that's how they get paid. So it only incentivizes higher cost, higher intervention care than might otherwise be necessary in the hands of a primary care physician, which really is a diagnostician, their job is to determine what's wrong with you and only call in a specialist when it reaches a level above their training. So I think investing in primary care and Again, we mentioned some of the perverse incentives, but I wanna tell you how the average primary care doctor is compensated when they work for the large local healthcare system. There's two factors predominantly that influence their pay. One is volume of patients. The more patients they see in a day, the more money they make. Of course, the more patients they see in a day, the less time they spend per patient and the quality of care goes down. The other thing, and this is a lesser known metric, how much revenue that provider is generating in other parts of the healthcare system. So even if I do go to my primary care doctor first in this environment, his Most profitable path is to get me out of his office as quickly as possible, which might involve an opioid or a pain medication, which I know you know is part of why we have an opioid epidemic in this country, and then refer me to his buddy, the back surgeon. That's going to maximize his or her profit. But that's going to put me in a situation where the most expensive, most traumatic care is most likely to occur. So investing in primary care is one thing. The second thing is total transparency. You know, I'm sick and tired of these carriers when we ask for data saying, we can't give that to you because of HIPAA. No, HIPAA doesn't say an employer can't have that information. Actually, ERISA says the employer must have that information. What HIPAA says is that if the employer does have that info, they must do certain things to protect it. That's what HIPAA says. So they push back on HIPAA. They push back on laws that employers are not familiar with to scare them into thinking they're going to be out of compliance because who should know healthcare laws better than health insurance companies? Nobody should. But yet they spout incorrectly about the laws all the time. So, total transparency and being able to get any bit of data on your plan, your money, anytime is also important. The third thing is being able to do common sense things. Like the price and quality of healthcare varies so much. And if you look really deep, you'll see that they tend to be inversely related to each other in healthcare. So, as quality goes up, cost frequently goes down. And the metric that drives that is frequency. The more frequently a doctor in hospital do a particular procedure, the better they do it. And surprise, surprise, the more efficiently they do it, so the lower the cost. And the variation in price can be an order of magnitude of a 1,000% or more. So much so that if you could do something to motivate the patient, the employee, to go to where the quality is higher and the cost is lower, so have them pay nothing... And the cost is usually so much lower that the health plan is still saving a boatload of money, regardless of waiving the out-of-pocket. Now, that makes total sense to do, but you will never be able to do that in a carrier-based model for two reasons. One is it's contrary to the revenue of the carrier, so you're going to actually lower their revenue if you did that. And that would violate their only fiduciary responsibility, which is to... Their shareholders but more importantly what i think people don't really understand is that these large health systems and there's oftentimes several in every every major market and at least one even in the less major markets if a local health system left the network of one of the carriers then every employer in that market is going to leave so think about this for a second we're trusting two really large powerful entities in a completely blindfolded manner to negotiate the bulk of our healthcare costs in a closed-door environment and they both benefit from costs going up. And I understand that most employers don't understand that that's what's occurring, but now you do. For anyone listening to this, now you know, and if you doubt any of this, ask questions, research it. I promise you'll find the answers.
0: What self-insured employers are doing who have decided to put their procurement hats on and really, I mean, effectively not get taken advantage of by these profit-seeking entities is to dramatically improve primary care, advanced primary care. There's a bunch of different names for it. Number one. Mm -hmm. Number two, demand total transparency as ERISA, frankly, demands. And then number three, do common sense things. And it sounds like one of them is aligning a benefit design around, frankly, what's best for the employee as well as the employer. There's plenty of win-wins. And one of them obviously is helping employees get to a provider that has high quality and that data is more and more available you know, which surgeons have fewer complications, any number of quality metrics that are out there, number one. And then number two, which ones are actually charging a fair price? And the employer, despite the fact that it's very difficult for consumers to read some of the pricing information and and whatnot that's out there, it's easier for employers to do so, even if they have to hire a firm to help them with this. The juice is worth the squeeze, for an employer to know ahead of time that they're not going to pay 4x for a lower quality knee surgery than one that they can get across town, like literally maybe miles away. That is better and 25% of the cost. Right. Okay. We've got these three things. Is there more?
1: How your broker is compensated, first and foremost, every employer should have every broker sign a compensation disclosure form signed by one of their officers of the agency. Healthrosetta.org, which is a nonprofit organization that I contribute to, has a, a form you can use. But understanding how the primary person that's giving you advice, how are they compensated? And then if that compensation is misaligned with the plan, then they should look to change that. I think the last big area is gonna be pharmacy. If you think there's perverse incentives on the medical side of the fence, it gets even worse on the pharmacy side and on the pharmacy side. The way they make money and they are making in many cases more money than the insurance carriers is misaligned. And realigning that contractually and guaranteed is what absolutely needs to be done.
0: Let me go through our quick roadmap here. We've got dramatically improving primary care, we've got the total transparency, we've got doing common sense things. And the common sense things include having a benefit design that is to everyone's best interest, which may include some steerage that can ensure volume is appropriate, then also have some pricing methodologies, bundles, etc., which also ensure that we're not overpaying for the services that are in fact appropriate. Would that be a good summary?
1: Yeah, that's a good start. Anyway, if those got done, we can work on the rest. But yeah,
0: we're calling it a roadmap because it's a path that's been laid. So when employers actually do this, Mm. what are the results?
1: Let's talk clinically first and then financially. Clinically, we find people that were dealing with multiple chronic diseases suddenly not be dealing with those chronic diseases anymore. We get them into the right providers who have the right experience, the right training, the right mindset, and usually the right revenue model that is going to ensure a better outcome and i mean i can give so many horror stories around that people on wrong cancer medications i mean the impact that we have on employees absenteeism presenteeism and productivity is is pretty staggering albeit hard to measure the financial piece is much easier to measure it's not uncommon for us to reduce total healthcare spend for an employer by between 20 and 40 percent at the end of the first year and we typically have our biggest impact at the end of the first year and then um it's not uncommon to have another 10, 20, or 30% at the end of the second year. We often see still a reduction into the third year. But over that time period, the reason it's continuing to go down is number one, we typically ease employers into the transition because there is a change, right? I can't change your outcome without changing the path you walked to get there. So there are some changes. It's not the same. It's different, but it needs to be different. And it's how fast we walk them down that path that drives how much of that savings comes in year one, two, and three. Once we get to where we feel we've kind of soaked out as much of the savings as we can get, usually that's somewhere between 40 and 60% below what they were spending in a traditional plan. If you Google my name and then SHRM, you'll find an article that a SHRM editor wrote. What I want to bring out said, benefit experts say that going self-funded is where the journey starts, not where it ends. And I can't tell you, I mean, employees say, oh no, we're self-insured, we're good, because they think that, okay, they're just paying claims, but that is not true, number one. They are paying a lot more than claims. And number two, how much are the claims? Like, that's the biggest bucket. And when you reduce that bucket, the cost of insuring that bucket also goes down. You can't do it the other way around. You can't try and lower your insurance bucket and hope that that lowers your claims bucket.
0: Since oftentimes paying for health insurance is an employer's second largest line item after payroll, you know, 40 to 60%, even 20%. That's a huge dollar amount that Hmm. if all of a sudden you had extra millions of dollars... Could probably be put to far better use than compensating the shareholders at some company yep, <laughs> that's not <basically>, your own. <laughs> right. As you sort of alluded to, obviously, there's a lot of fear here because we don't have the vast majority of employers in this country who are saving half on their health care. You, you know, there's obviously some great allure to going the, in quotes, what's perceived to be the safe route, at least thus far. So there's this messy middle, the retaining and attracting new talent question, you know, like we have to say that we've got the best a plan that everybody knows because when new employees are or are trying to t- attract new talent or keep it, not having these brand names may be considered a, a problem. Is that something that you see as an actual issue for yeah. the clients that you work with? Yes, absolutely. They want
1: a brand name health insurance company. They want a brand name broker and they want a brand name healthcare system. But all of those things come at a very high price, both physically and financially. I mean, I would so much rather know that my health care is good than it's recognizable. I would so much rather know that my health insurance is good than it be recognizable. I mean, if most employers truly understood how badly these carriers and health systems are taking advantage of them, and I, I don't know if it's because of the hiding of the taking advantage of or just the sheer volume of it that they feel overwhelmed, but they don't even recognize And I often liken it to Stockholm syndrome. The entire country has Stockholm syndrome with the insurance companies. And it's not just the health systems. It's brokers, employers, patients, doctors, maybe the most doctors. They hate the insurance companies, but yet they're forced to ask them for permission before they can... Give any test, any drug, any medication. And listen, some of the doctors caused this because when we flipped to a fee for service environment 30 or 40 years ago, doctors quickly realized the more services they provide, the more fees they get. So they started to over test, over prescribe, over treat. And medical management and pre cert sort of brought the hammer down, I think, in the wrong way, in the opposite direction. But in any event, it is where we are. So, and if there's any doctors listening to this, when we find a practice that is fully aligned, and there's a couple of requirements and prerequisites that make that so, we remove all pre-cert, prior off, step therapy from that provider. Literally, if they say it's medically necessary, they do not need to ask permission. It's covered. Done. So our plans don't just make the employer's finances better. They don't just make the employee's finances better. They also make the employee's health better. And they make the doctor's lives better that cooperate and collaborate to, again, bring those better outcomes.
0: It's interesting how many physicians feel like they're not affected by financial incentives and just any amount if you want to be evidence based about it look at the research everyone is affected it's you are affected i am affected everyone is affected by the financial incentives in the marketplace there's just also huge research into conflicts of interest in oncology drugs it's just it's mm-hmm. so prevalent sadly amongst the you know medical profession and i think one of the reasons why is this denial that it exists Mm -hmm. So there's that. Is there anything that I neglected to ask you, David, that you want to mention here?
1: I think, I mean, we've covered a lot of things. I just, the only fear that employers should have, and if they have any other fear, they're not understanding this type of model. The only legitimate fear that employers should have is how do they message these changes in a way to the employees that get them to understand that this is for them. And that should be the biggest challenge they focus on because we can handle everything else. We got it. We'll make it happen. But how you, the leadership that you have with your employees and your ability to stand up before them and say, I'm not doing this to you. I'm doing this for you. And having the credibility and leadership skills that your employees not only believe you, but support you and want to get behind you in doing this. If we just make that occur, we're going to be successful. And that's, it's that change management, that when we fail, it's that that failed. Very rarely do we, no, I means not very rarely, never have we failed financially, not once. But the amount of pushback and noise that come from the employees, especially at the beginning, is largely driven by the leadership of the company. And there's only so much that we can do to influence that.
0: Change management is a whole industry for a th- reason, right? Absolutely. David, if someone is interested in learning more about e-powered benefits, where can they go for info?
1: I suggest LinkedIn is great. You can also Google either my name or my partner's name, Emma Fox. She puts out a lot of content and um, has a little bit of a different approach, but utilizing you know the same strategies and the same aligned incentives and the same results. We are not looking to keep these ideas proprietary. As a matter of fact, we believe the more we share them, the more brokers and consultants that embrace them, the more employers and employees that embrace them, the better it's going to get. And the more it's going to raise the tide of all the ships that are trying to do this. I firmly believe that this is not going to be fixed by Wall Street. It's not going to be fixed by Washington, D.C., and it's not going to be fixed by large employers. It's not going to be a million employee company like Walmart. It's going to be 100,000, 100 in-person companies doing this. And so if you're a small business, 20, 50, 100, 300, 500, a couple thousand employees or more, you have an opportunity before you to fix this, not just for yourself not just for your family, not just for your employees and not just for their families and not just for your owners or shareholders, but for the country. And I know that might sound a little melodramatic, but this has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, the system's going to break and it's going to be picked up by entities that are, I think, only going to make the situation worse. And I think we have a closing window here to create a healthcare system and a health insurance system based on free market principles, the principles that we've embraced as a country, the capitalistic principles. I want people to make money, but I want them to make money in an honest, genuine and aligned way. And that's not what's going on in healthcare right now.
0: And you work with both brokers, so you can Mm -hmm. be a consultant's consultant, so to speak, as well as directly with employers yourself. Is that correct?
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. We mentor brokers uh, and consultants around the country.
0: And it's ePoweredBenefits.com?
1: Yep. That's our website.
0: David Contorno, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thanks, Stacy. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you. So you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.